Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says, speaking of Jesus, being found in the appearance as a man. Being found in the appearance as a man. There is no greater text in Scripture than the one we're going to look at that you're going to see the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. He was fully man. Paul goes on to say that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And this morning you are going to see him come up against that. He is going to stare death right in the eyes. He has full realization of what awaits him. And you will see emotions out of the Lord Jesus Christ that you have not seen during his earthly ministry. The Bible says that he was obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. According to verse 26, as you look back at our text, Mark chapter 14, verse 26, they sang a hymn, and they went out from the Mount of Olives. And so now we find Jesus and his 11 disciples. They've completed the Passover meal, and they're making their way to the Mount of Olives. They've probably exited the east entrance, which is no longer there right now, but they've gone out that east entrance of Jerusalem, and they're making their way down and across the Kindred Valley. This time of year, they would have had some seasonal rains, most likely. Those rains would have caused water to move down that little creek that is down in the bottom of that, and they would maybe be just crossing that. The temple was set up in Jerusalem so that the back of the temple came up against the wall and there they would, after the sacrifice of all these lambs that were taking place these last few days, that blood would be washed out the back of that temple. It would go down the back of the wall and make its way into that little stream, that little brook in the Kindred Valley. It is very, very possible as Jesus and his disciples step across this small brook that it is still red with the blood of lambs. Think about that. Here, the Lamb of God, the one who would lay his life down, the very final lamb, now is crossing over possibly a blood-stained stream. The Passover meal would have taken anywhere from four to six hours. It was a very leisurely long meal now. And it would have started about sunset, and most likely now it's closing in on midnight as Jesus and his disciples are headed for the garden. They're going right back to a place 24 hours ago they were at. There Jesus instructed his disciples about end times and his return, the second coming. And doubtlessly now as you begin to look at this text, you begin to realize Jesus is somewhat subdued. It's not hard to see it in the text. Isaiah 53, 3 says, Jesus was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, and you will see that today at probably some of the highest levels that Christ reaches. The scriptures never record Jesus laughing. I imagine he did. You can't have 12 men around a fire at night without something laughter going on. But the scripture does not record that. However, the scriptures do record Christ's reaction to the result of sin. Over and over we find places like Mark eight twelve, where he sighs deeply. He groans over the hard-heartedness of Israel. Christ displays a heavy heart as he witnesses spiritual blindness after time and time again after teaching and coming into 
coming into connection with the spiritual leaders. Repeatedly, the Lord displays compassion. We see him have compassion for the sick. He looked on them. The Bible says he healed all who came to him. He had compassion over the sick, the disabled, the hungry, the unclean. Time and time, we see the emotions of Jesus flow. Jesus experiences intense feelings over the death of Lazarus. He saw what the wages of sin does and it even ravaged the ones he loved. He loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He spent a great amount of time with them. John chapter 11, verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her, speaking of Mary, weeping over the death of Lazarus and the Jews who were coming also to weep, he was, the Bible says he was deeply moved in spirit, in his inner person, and he was troubled. He was troubled. Jesus also displays great emotions as he contemplates the cost of redeeming us. We'll see that in today's text. After three years of ministry that fill the, the four gospel accounts, there is nothing that seems to compare to the sorrow that we'll see of our Lord in the garden. But with all that said, I, 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 we're going to talk about sorrow and the grief and the weight. I don't want you to forget Hebrews chapter 12. There it says that the author and perfecter of our faith, and then this phrase, you know it, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. We will look at the sadness of Christ. It is, it is actually overwhelming. I wept as I studied this passage over and over this week. But the Bible says that there was a joy set before him to do it. And though in his humanity he, he agonizes over what is to come, in his deity he knows the joyful response to the Father's will to go redeem people who will perish. And so the writer of Hebrews says the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And when it was all done, he sat down because it was completed at the right hand of the Father. And I don't want you to lose that as we go through a very emotional text this morning. Let me give you four thoughts this morning in this text that Charles read for us. Number one, Jesus was struck for our sin and raised for our justification. Jesus was struck for our sin and raised for our justification. Look at verse 27 with me as we begin this text. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. Notice that phrase, Jesus says, you will all fall away. Well, somewhere between the upper room and that glorious time they had in celebrating the Passover, to the garden, this difficult conversation comes up. In fact, as you study the harmony of the Gospels, it seems like this conversation had several opportunities, not just this said once, probably said twice or maybe three times before the night is done. The term fall away is the Greek word scandalize, scandalizo. You know what that means, right? It has a future passive to it. This is going to happen to you in the future. The verb carries this idea that you'll be caught like one in a trap. It doesn't mean the disciples took offense at Jesus. That's not what the verb means. 
it, it carries more of the idea that you'll be caught away, you'll be overwhelmed by what's about to happen tonight. He's warning them that great difficulties are coming their way. Listen, this event would stagger their faith. It'll shake their confidence in, in who Jesus is. Is he really the Messiah? It'll challenge their loyalty to him. And, 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 but in the end, it will show who's truly saved. Remember, Jesus has already dismissed the betrayer, the one who is an unbeliever. He's now gone. But these 11 are going to get shook to the core of who Jesus is. He's going to challenge them. Notice this phrase. It's an Old Testament quote. Because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Well, first off, notice that the prediction is grounded in Scripture. Remember, Jesus said, I've come to fulfill all that was written about me. From the laws, to the prophets, to the Psalms. I've come to fulfill those. And this particular text comes out of Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. But notice, and this is the second thought here, notice Jesus changes the original imperative. He, in Zechariah 13, it's the verb used to strike. But here he says, I will strike. He's I think he makes this very powerful because he changes the meaning that, that Jesus saw his coming suffering not just, not just as an act from men, but he sees it as coming from God. God will strike me. God will strike me. And the sheep will scatter. Peter certainly picks up on this. His first great sermon at the birth of the church, he says he was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God so clearly Jesus is describing his death in the spirit of Isaiah 53 right it's the picture of the, of the suffering servant the father crushes him on our behalf Isaiah 53 this is what the Lord is describing however this unexpected striking of the disciple shepherd would leave them completely distraught and and scatter them in all directions. We'll see in coming sermons that at the end of the arrest, they scatter, they run for the hills. Some sneak in to watch his trial, but they all flee, just like this text says. See, this is the Scripture's predictive, prophetic nature. And all four Gospels warn the disciples of this. They warn the disciples. Look at verse 28 with me. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Well, this conjunction here is an aversive conjunction or opposing conjunction. Notice a strong word, but. This is a difficult verse. 27 is a difficult verse. It's, it's, this is bad. Uh, the Father's going to strike the Son, the disciples, the small group that's going to carry the gospel into, into the future for the church is all going to scatter. But then he says, but, hold on, let me contrast that. There's something going to happen great. And then this strong contrasting thought here shows the difference between the darkness of his death and the light of his resurrection. It would have been hard to hear. They would have known that text in Zechariah. And then to hear that it was put towards him, I, I will strike the shepherd. They knew what he was saying at some level. The passive voice here points to God as the one who would raise him. 
So God will strike the shepherd, but it's also God who will raise the great shepherd from the dead. He's given them hope, and though they may not understand this at the moment, they would remember this in time. Rarely do you see Jesus speak of his death. If you go study um, the, about 11, 12, 13 times, um, depending on repetition, he never or, or almost rarely ever speaks of his death without his resurrection. However, the mention of his resurrection seems just to have little impression on the disciples at this point, doesn't it? They don't seem to capture what's going on. They don't seem to grasp his death, let alone his resurrection. But look what Jesus is doing. He's continuing to shepherd. He's continuing to be that shepherd figure as he speaks with confidence. Even though he's about to go into this agony as he prepares for the cross, he speaks with confidence that death can't hold him, that he will be raised. And notice he declares that he will meet them in Galilee for an amazing reunion. For an amazing reunion. And think about that. I thought about this for a while this week. I said he didn't, he didn't raise from the dead and go meet them back in Jerusalem where things were a hotbed. He went back to where his ministry was. He took them back out of the city, away from all of that, to protect them and help them understand that he was risen from the dead. He's always shepherding. He's always caring for our souls, isn't he? I think it's fascinating that this prophecy and this promise of a post-resurrection appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, look, he was delivered over because of our transgressions. He was raised for our justification, Romans chapter four, verse 25. He was delivered over because of our willful sin, our, our depravity. He was delivered over, but he was raised from the dead to declare you righteous. What a great statement. And here in the midst, in this hour coming upon him, Judas is somewhere assembling right now, this group of temple police. All that's happening down in Jerusalem. In the next hour, he's gonna make his way to go see Jesus arrested. But here, our Lord with the 11 is saying, death won't beat me. I will raise from the dead. Second thought this morning, the followers of Christ who oppose the will of God. The followers of Christ who oppose the will of God. You think, well, that's quite a statement there, Scott, isn't it? And I wrote this point because it's really, you'll see the validity of it in the text. But as, even as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we oppose him sometimes? We know what's right to do. We know what he has told us to do, and yet we don't do it. We sometimes oppose him. And we'll see here as we venture into this next thought, these men who have seen all of his miracles, have listened to all of his teaching, who believe him to be the Messiah, who have now been told that he's gonna raise from the dead, they're gonna oppose what Jesus says, even as he agonizes. Look at verse 29 with me. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. This prophetic announcement falls upon deaf ears, doesn't it? Their predetermined will of what Jesus is to be doing is greater than what Jesus said. This is why we have to be careful of our presuppositions. We believe Jesus should do something or God should do something, and when he tells us that he's gonna do something different, we will butt up against it, and that's what's happening here. Peter, the impulsive spokesman, for the group, he responds. Notice how quickly he responds. 
This is not a lag in time here. He says, um, after I will be raised, I will go ahead of you in Galilee. He says, but Peter says immediately, no, that's not going to happen. He said, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Notice Peter did not deny the prediction, but instead, upon one exception, himself. He's not saying that all are going to fall away. What he's saying is, they may fall away, but not me. Not me. Notice the but in this one in verse 29. Again, a very contrasting thought. Peter is contrasting what Jesus is saying. I'm different than them. Once again, Peter finds himself at odds with the Savior. You remember when he did this last. Matthew chapter 16, verse 22, Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking like a man. You're not thinking like me. You're not listening to what I have to say. Peter now is at odds with Christ and possibly even the group. Certainly, there was a genuine love for Christ behind Peter's protest, but it reveals a sad ignorance of his own weaknesses. Peter pridefully elevates himself above the other disciples. Notice that. And I think he grossly underestimates his own weakness, and yet in his pride he compares himself to others. Look, that's us in so many ways. So often we'll look at others, they're not doing this, or they're not doing that, and we have expectations, and we, we, we somehow in our piousness or, or false piousness try to raise ourselves over, well, we do this better than they. You know when Jesus is restoring Peter in John 21, Verse five, he says, do you love me more than these? Do you think maybe, do you think maybe that would might a challenge to him? Because in essence, isn't Peter saying, oh, I love you more than the rest of these. I, I will not fall away. The Lord knew his heart, didn't he? Look at verse 30. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, that this very night before the rooster crows, twice you yourself will deny me three times. Notice Jesus quickly singles out Peter to reveal to him that his failure would be greater than the rest of the disciples. Isn't that interesting? And notice he says this very night. So Peter had singled himself out as the one who would remain faithful while the others scatter. So Jesus singles him out in order to inform Peter that he would not only scatter, but he would deny him. Notice the time of the coming of this dishonorable action that Peter engages in. Jesus says, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. So this very night sets the time limit. While it's still dark, you're going to deny me. And if you want more details, Peter, before the rooster crows twice, so this further limits the time before dawn. It is now narrowing in. You are going to reject me, Jesus, your Savior, before the night's out. What an amazing statement. It gives us further insight to the illegal trial that will go on, that we'll see our next time together, um, that the Jews put on at darkness. They were not supposed to ever try somebody during dark hours. 
But the point is, Peter, who had elevated himself above others, Jesus says, let me tell you, you're not only going to scatter, but you're going to deny me, and here's the time frame you're going to do it in. We see the preciseness of his prophetic call to Peter. Now remember, Mark is recording the gospel message, because I want to give Peter some credit here. Mark's recording, um, most likely, Peter's preaching that's inspired by the Holy Spirit, and Peter himself is saying this probably, and Mark is recording this. (laughs) So as we talk about Peter here for a moment, remember he later goes on and tells this story of what? Of himself. He doesn't whitewash this in any way. He comes and says, yeah, this is what the Lord said, and this is what I did. Only Mark records that the rooster will quote twice, and I think that this does, is this shows the vivid memory of this event by Peter. This was marked in Peter's mind. By the way, the word deny is a strong compound future verb here, and it, and it carries this idea that in the next few hours, Peter will deny any personal connection to, G, to Jesus in any way. In any way, we'll see that where he calls down curses from heaven if he has anything to do with Jesus. And so this prophetic announcement by Jesus Christ is very pointed, isn't it? But for us, we need to be careful. Do not think yourself above Peter. None of us should sit in this room and say, oh, Peter, how could you have done that? Those of us that are truly honest with ourselves and will examine our lives through the scriptures would know, oh God, I am but one word away from denying you if it was not for the grace of God. And so I would say this to you and to myself, stay close to Christ. Believe his word. When he says something, believe it. The problem was he said it and they didn't believe it. They didn't believe what he was saying and so we fall into great trouble. We fall into times where we will not stand for Christ because in that moment, over all the moments we believed, in that moment we didn't believe. In that short moment we said, I don't believe. And we find ourselves denying our Savior. Look at verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Well, it seems Jesus' revelation only provoked a further passion out of Peter. The word insistently, it's a, it has an imperfect tense to it, so it means that he just kept on repeating the protest. No, not me, not me, not me, not me. I'm not going to do this. Some of your older translations will say vehemently. He vehemently said this will not happen. This adverb displays an excessive repetition. But notice this phrase that he says, Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will, not deny, I will not deny you. See, Peter is willing to admit that this may cause his death, but he will not let the fear of death be the source of him to deny Christ. And I I think that's admirable. That statement is admirable if it stands alone. Look, oh Lord, I'll die for you. Have you ever said that to the Lord? 
It, you want to be very careful when that comes out of your mouth. But would you be willing to die for him? I think it's a very admirable statement, but it's out of context because Christ said that's not what's going to happen. And so there's a rejection to that. Before you isolate Peter too much, notice the end of verse 31. It says that they all were saying the same thing. So Peter, the spokesman, had kind of led them into this. So Peter's position was approved and it was accepted by all of the disciples. And yet we'll see next coming weeks in, in just hour from now, um, probably somewhere around an hour from this point, they all run. And none of them want to be associated with Jesus. Worth noting, again, that Mark and all of the gospel writers did not spare Peter or the other apostles' reputation in this, did they? They didn't spare their reputations. And, and what, why I say this is this is a strong, strong case of the authority and the trustworthiness of the Scriptures. Because you and I would not record this stuff for all of mankind for the next 2,000 years to say, oh yeah, this is what I said and this is what I did. This teaches you about the inspiration and the trustworthiness of scriptures. Third thought this morning. Our Savior's incomprehensible agony in the garden. Our Savior's incomprehensible agony in the garden now look, as the scene shifts to the Garden of Gethsemane, the narrative becomes more vivid and more moving. And it reveals, and, and it, the, you can't miss this, this reveals the true humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. We always say that Jesus is fully man and fully God. This is one of the texts that you see so clearly. Notice this scene leaves an unforgettable impression upon Peter and, and the other disciples, and as Mark records this, as Peter probably preaches this, they do not forget this scene. All of them record it. Look with me at verse 32. And they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. This verse gives a historical and, a, and a, really a geographical presence to the reader, right? It brings us back to the scene. Most likely, this is just before midnight. Jesus and disciples have now entered this garden. The word Gethsemane means uh, uh, olive press, a press of some sort. And, and doubtlessly, this is referring to this garden of olive trees. It probably has a rock wall that surrounds it. It's a place of quiet, quietness and seclusion. And most likely, they've been there before, if not the night before. It seems to be a favorite place that Jesus retires to when he's in Jerusalem. He knows, our Lord knows, this is the divine meeting place. And, and look, if you knew that Judas was going to bring the temple police and he was going to betray you, you would not go to X marks the spot, would you? <laughs> I would be going to whatever opposite of X marks the spot. We would be heading the other direction. And, and a lot of people, they're, they're all the liberals and people that hate the Bible will say, well, look, Jesus was trying to run away. Look, he just got caught. Actually, he went right to the spot where Judas would come find him. And he prayed and waited for him. He's there showing us how you spend your time with the Lord. The Bible says that Jesus said, sit here until I've prayed 
It seems the disciples have seen this before. The Lord will bring them to a spot. He'll drop them off. He'll go a little further. It seems repetitive probably to them. Not in a bad way. They know what Jesus is going to do. And I think what Jesus is doing on this final example, this final time, he's displaying why personal prayer with God is so important. And he's displaying it to the future leaders of the church who will be a part of the birth of that. What an example. Look at verse 33 with me. And he took... And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be very distressed and troubled. Well, Jesus takes this inner circle of disciples with him a little further, and just as he had done in places like the Mount of Transfiguration, he chooses Peter, James, and John um, to see his glory on that mount, but now he chooses to take them so they will see his extreme agony. I think it's even more than that, though. I don't think Jesus was just wanting them to understand his suffering, but I think he desired their comfort. Remember, he's human. He is fully God. But he's operating most of the time in his humanity, isn't he? He's about ready to go through something so serious and so heavy. And I think he brings those three along for comfort. Companionship during this struggle. There's nothing greater than one who sticks closer than a brother, especially when you go through suffering. And so I think Jesus brought these men along. I think possibly it reveals the loneliness that was beginning to fall upon Jesus. Not only was he going to suffer alone, his own father would separate him in a, in a unique way so that he could carry the weight of the sins of the world. Look at verse 33, the last part of it. And he began to be very distressed and troubled. The word began gives you an idea that there's a new state of mind happening here. There's a new state of things. Something's happening here. And as Jesus walked further in the garden with these three disciples, a strong sorrow begins to sweep over him. It's so strong, invisible to Peter and James and John that they all vividly remember this account. Jesus has long foreseen his death. He spoke about his death. And now, listen to this. Think about this. The shadow of the cross is actually at his feet. He's standing there. He knows what's about it. The shadow of the cross and all of that meant, all the weight, all of that is now at his feet. He's right there as this hour begins to take place. And I think he seems to feel the horror of what waits him. The Bible says he's very distressed and troubled just strong words at the end of verse 33. And certainly in his humanity, the thoughts of physical death was real, but, but think more. Think about the pressure of his sinless soul bearing the weight of the world's sin. Never, ever sinning, impeccable life of Christ now will bear the weight of sin. His full knowledge of a coming separation of his father, the weighty effects of all of that. Our Lord's emotions are torn and they're restless at the coming event. 
You can't get around these words, very distressed and troubled. I think sometimes we see Jesus only in his deity. That would be such a mistake. He's suffering for you and I. He's relating with you and I. He's representing you and I. Verse 34 says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. To the point of death. As he tells Peter, James, and John. Isn't it amazing that our Lord would conceal, or excuse me, not conceal that? He tells these three men who will soon be asleep, I'm grieving to the point of death. Has anybody ever grieved like that before? You grieve so hard that you thought you would die. The phrase, to the point of death, indicates that sorrow was so great that it threatened to crush him. It threatened to crush him. In other words, in his humanity, it swept over him to the very limits of his endurement. How can I endure this? The whole picture denotes an overwhelming agony, which I think is quite beyond a human comprehension. I know some of you in this room have suffered greatly things. But I don't think there's any comparison to what the Lord was looking at. See, when I go back and I read a verse like Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted, tested in all things as we are yet without sin. It's it's just an amazing verse. There's no one in this room who can say, you don't know, Jesus. You can't say that to him. He has been to the point of death in his agony. Well, he tells the disciples, remain here and keep watch. It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Men, stay in this place. Be watchful. I need to go talk to my father. I need to be alone with him. You guys stay alert. You be here. You watch. And it seems that Jesus desires the comfort of their presence, but he wants them to be alert so he can concentrate intensely as he speaks to the Father as he prepares for this hour. Notice verse 35. And he went a little beyond them, and he fell to the ground, and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass away. Luke 22, 41 says that Jesus went about a stone's throw away. I like that. I can see that. He's not very far away, depending on how good your arm is. But notice he's, he faces this sorrow. Here's this great sorrow here. He separates from the three, and he, he knows what he must suffer. The hour is coming. Isaiah 63, 3, I think, points to this. It says, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I've had to trodden this alone. There was no man with me. And the men who are with them will fall asleep. Luke's account says he kneeled. Mark says he fell on the ground. You can see the word pictures. He gets about a stone's throw away from him. He collapses first to his knees and then to the ground. I don't know how you can miss that. If you've ever had sorrow so deep where you, all you could do is fall on the ground and plead for God, you might have an understanding what he's going through. 
Notice the Bible says he began to pray. Word means that he repeatedly and continued to pray. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 reaccounts it. It says, in his days of flesh he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Luke mentions one prayer. Mark mentions two prayers and implies a third. And Matthew indicates all three prayers and John records one of them. John 17. Notice Jesus says that if it were possible, the hour might pass by. We're into verse 35. That if it were possible, this is his prayer, that the hour might pass by him. That's what Hebrews write. That's what writer of Hebrews said, with tears, with loud crying and tears, to the one able to save him from death. This is exactly what happened. And I don't know if Peter, James, and John, as they drifted off into sleep, could hear him. But a stone's throw away, most likely you could hear his agony. And yet they still fell asleep. The hour refers to this divine appointed time of his sacrificial substitutionary death. The hour was long anticipated. You can study Jesus' words. He says, it's not my hour yet. It's not my hour yet. It's not my hour yet. He says that all the way through his ministry. And now he says, it's my hour. Death is upon him. As fully human, he naturally pulls back, right? What human? What human? Your natural reaction is to pull back. He's fully human. So he pulls back from this threat of death in his humanity. He petitions with great requests that, that there, if there's some other way, God, we can fulfill this messianic message, this messianic chapter, if we can fulfill this some other way, let's do it. But listen, in his deity, there was no hesitation as he gets off his knees and goes to the cross. I want you to see that. Don't miss him. He's human. He bleeds. He weeps. He's in agony. And yet he will go to the cross for us. Forethought. Christ's cup of wrath and the spiritually lethargic disciples. Christ's cup of wrath and the spiritually lethargic disciples. Verse 36. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. He uses this very enduring term, Abba Father. Abba was Arabic, Father was Greek. This, this term stresses Jesus' loving, family-oriented communication with his Father in heaven. Even while he is in agony. The term, if you follow the term in extra-biblical uh, usage, it was used within very close Jewish families. Jewish children referred to their father that they had a close relationship with. They would call him Abba. But the term was never used by religious leaders and those who tried to come to God with works-oriented belief because they didn't fail a close connection with God. And if you try to come to God with your works, you'll never ever call him Abba. But that's not what Jesus had. In fact, I think he set the example of how he spoke in these most intimate terms with his father so much that this double title 
that he gives the Father, Abba, Father, it occurs even in the New Testament. In fact, it's only used three times, but once by the Lord Jesus and twice by the Apostle Paul. And I think what happens, the Apostle Paul learns of this, and he sees the title that Jesus uses to his Father, and he begins to use it in the early church, and pretty soon we see the early church speaking this way. They are unrestricted by their works. They come to God by grace alone, and now they can call him Abba, Father. And I think the new covenant changed their view of God. It changes your view. If you're here and you're hearing this sermon and you're still coming to God by your good works, you're saying, well, God, you're going to accept me because I go to church and I give and I'm a good person and so forth, you'll never feel close to God. Come to him empty-handed. Come to him with no works of your own, totally undeserving of the grace that he will give you and you'll call him Abba someday. Notice, back in verse 36, he says, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Only Mark records this level of request, particularly the power, the omnipotent ability of God. So he recognizes that. God, you, you have the power to remove this. And he requests in that power. He speaks of this cup, and it represents this bitter suffering and death with Jesus. He must drink it. If he's going to be the suffering servant of Isaiah, he must drink it. And that means that he, listen to this, the holy and sinless one would have to identify with sinful men. He'd have to become the sin bearer. And he would then become the object of God's holy wrath. The Bible tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. In Galatians 3.13, the Bible says Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is the cup. You're cursed. You become sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. This cup was heavy, and he had to drink every drop of it. And so Jesus, in his holy nature, he would recoil against the human sin and corruption. He would recoil back. This was difficult. He was sinless, and yet he had to take on sin. Not, not be a sinner himself, but take on the wages of those. And this produced agony. And he knew the Father would pull back from him. But look at this statement at the end. Of verse 36, yet not what I will, but what you. At the very heart of Jesus' prayer was this absolute resolve to submit to the divine will of the Father. He knew the cost of the cross. He knew the heaviness of obeying him. But Jesus spent his entire earthly ministry fulfilling this, and this was the climax. Not my will, but yours. And this is the climax of that promise. Hebrews 5, 8 goes on to say this, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. He learned obedience. He's fully man, and in that full humanity, he learned to obey the Father. He said, well, Jesus was perfect. He didn't have to, it wasn't very hard for him. No, he was fully human, and he had to obey the Father. And you see that battle right now going on, that, that agony that waged war against him. As he said, ultimately, your will be done, not mine. Look at 37 and 38. And he came and found them sleeping 
and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, I think Jesus is desiring comfort and fellowship as he goes through this agony, but instead he finds this lethargic, spiritually lethargic group of men who can't identify with him yet. They don't understand. They haven't joined the fellowship of his suffering yet. And notice Peter singled out the rebuke here, isn't he? That night Peter had singled himself out and again the Lord comes back and he uses the word Simon. And he's only used that a couple of times in the scriptures. He doesn't use the word Peter here. And Peter means rock, right? Petros. So he goes back to his old name, Simon. You're not being the rock. <laughs> You've fallen asleep. He says, could you not watch for an hour? I don't think that he prayed for an hour. I think this whole event is an hour, Probably. There's some people that build whole theologies on that. If you pray for an hour, you can be like Jesus. I don't think that's what you should do with this text. I think it's just talking about this time. Judas is forming with the temple police right now. He's on his way. And all this is transpiring. Notice in 38, it says, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Prior to this, Peter is recorded in Luke, not in Mark, but in Luke chapter 22, verse 31, Jesus said, Look, Simon, Satan's asking for your soul. He wants to sift you. And so he speaks. He says, Can't you keep awake and can't you pray so, uh, Satan has demanded permission that's what, he, that's what the Luke passage says Satan's demanded per- uh, permission to sift you but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail see Peter had a different faith and we know the story he goes out and weeps bitterly it means he repents doesn't take his life because he knows he has life in Christ But he's sorrowful over what he did. There's a true, godly, sorrowful repentance. Judas had none of that. But this is intense. There's a spiritual war going on. Think about this. There's a spiritual war going on, and he's asleep. Just think for a moment how many battles go on that you and I don't know about, and we're asleep spiritually. Satan wants your soul wants to sift you and we fall asleep the good news is that the little phrase that says that you may not in that verse is plural so it's I think it's addressing all three of those disciples but Peter is singled out because of his statement earlier in verse 34 Jesus had urged them to watch and and pay attention connect with my sorrow be with me go through this with me so you don't fall into temptation. Be ready, be alert. You notice he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit on one hand, the flesh on the other hand, it marks a great contrast, right? The inner person strengthened by the spirit of God is eager to follow Christ. We're eager, but our flesh, which is weak and often opposes the desires of the spirit, is battling, right? Peter himself wrote, behold, look, I mean, beloved, 
know this, ur- I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust, which wage war against your soul. Peter knew this. And he writes of it later. This stuff, your flesh is waging war against your soul. Be careful. Paul says it this way, Galatians 5, 17, for the flesh has set its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. And listen to this phrase, so that you may not do the things you please. I know too many Christians have told me, Scott, I wanna, I wanna worship the Lord. I wanna be, I wanna serve him. And then they go out and just stumble and fall and frustrate it with their lives. Spirit wants that. And the Spirit of God is enthusiastically supportive of that, but our flesh is awful strength strong. And so what are you feeding? Do you feed the Spirit or the flesh? Verse 39. Again he went and prayed, went away and prayed, saying the same words. So Jesus turns from his sleepy disciples here, their lethargicness, who failed to comfort him, and he turns back to the Father, the only one who could comfort him. And I wonder, I wonder as I studied this, whether the disciples' lethargic reaction intensified his sorrow. Maybe in his humanity he went to them and looked for some comfort of what he was going through and he, and he realized they, they, they don't understand and he goes back, he runs back to the Father and he gets right back to what he was with him and says, oh, Father. Possibly intensified it. The Bible says he prayed the same words and I think this means the same idea. He was not settled with this burden that he was going to have to carry. And so he still needs more time with the Father. And I, and I get that. There's times where a heavy burden will be upon me and I'll pray. And, and, and it, it's not enough. You go back, don't you? You go back and you go back. Oh, Lord, I can't do this on my own. Will you help me? And his humanity, he turns to his Father, but in his deity, he's fully capable of suffering And think about this, if Jesus would not have humbled himself to endure the will of God, the great purpose of his incarnation would never be accomplished, and that's the rescue of us. And so though he's wrestling in his humanity, he is dead set in his deity of what he must do. Look at verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. This time Jesus finds the the three even more sleepy. They're so tired they can't keep their eyes open. Sleep was overcoming their determinedness to be watchful and prayerful. And clearly, Peter's marking the shamefulness of this as it's recorded in the scriptures. He saw himself spiritually lethargic. Verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, so we know he's prayed three times now, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hands of sinners. The prayer session in the garden was divided into three separate acts, much like the three temptations in the wilderness. Dear brother reminded me this week, said yes, and Paul prayed three times that the thorn would be removed. There's something to this type of prayer of going to the Lord again and again. But notice he comes back and he says, it's enough. <laughs> um, I don't know completely what that means, but I think it just simply means the nap's over, let's go. 
I don't, I don't want to read more than that, but I just, I got, the nap's over. The situation's changing drastically. Jesus knew who's coming up the hill. Maybe the glow from the torches are coming with them. He says, my hour has come, so this long expected time has arrived. Jesus' earthly ministry is out at its climax. Sinful men are climbing the hill with clubs and swords and torches. And so he says, behold, the Son of Man. I love that term. I have fallen more deeply in love with the term of Son of Man as one of his titles than almost any other. Because he brings me into it now. I'm your representative. I'm the one that'll bring you into heaven. And so he says, the Son of Man is about to be betrayed. He's being betrayed. It's happening. It's going on right now as the verb into the hands of sinners. Behold, draws attention to the startling fact. Look, Judas is working. He's already got his things going. The religious leaders are in motion. This is happening. And then verse 42, get up. And let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And clearly the disciples were on the ground at this point still, still probably wiping the sleepy dust out of their eyes. And this is not a call to run away. It's a call to run right towards the enemy. And I imagine Jesus was asking Peter and James and John to go with him, to go gather up the other eight because Judas is at hand. And so here's our suffering Lord and we end with this. We'll pick this up, but here he is. He's wept and overwhelmed with agony and he stands there now ready to face what God has for him. Father, we are overwhelmed by what our Savior has done. We can't get our mind around the depth and breadth of his sorrow in the garden. The thought of man from Adam all the way forward and all the way into the future probably weighed on our Savior. This highest of creation has become the weight of his agony. And yet, he flawlessly executes your plan, Father. Lord, help us be watchful and prayerful, men and women and boys and girls. Help us not be lethargic spiritually. But may we be ready to follow you even through the most difficult times. We pray this in